London where you try to upstage me. You brought all your fun things with you. We're never going to be able to go back. All right, well, hi, good morning. Good morning. Refocus, good morning. Um, we're so glad you're here. We know it's been a long week. We know that y'all are aching to get outside, and we hope that this is a good way to kind of sum up what your week has been. Uh, my name is Ali Shulman. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are in the middle of a really fun sermon series. We have loved preaching on this sermon series. It's called The Signs of the Soul because it's really kind of for Stephen and I, it's super nerdy. And we love talking about this intersection between neuroscience and spirituality. We love asking the question, what do the latest findings in brain science have to do with our experience of God? And that's what we've been asking this whole last month we'll continue for a few more weeks, is that we've been asking this question, what does brain science, what does how our brain work have to do with our experience of God? And over the last few weeks, we've looked at different processes in the brain, like attention and memory and emotion. And we've looked at how they worked, how to strengthen them, what that has to do with spirituality. If you haven't uh, been part of those, if you haven't been here, then I recommend you go back, look at those. But today we're going to do something a little bit different. We're not going to talk about individual processes of the brain. We're going to talk about how they are integrated together, how all of those processes work together, and then how that affects not just our physical health, but our spiritual and emotional health as well. But to start off, we're going to look at the model that Stephen suggested last week that's by a guy named Dan Single. So we're going to do it again. If you were here last week, you know what I'm doing. So I need you to take your hand like this. Kids, too? I know you're digging into those boxes. I'm so excited to see your Valentine's Day, but you can do this, too. Okay? So you're going to put up your hand. I want you to pretend that this is your brain. Okay? This part, your wrist, right here. Can you touch your wrist, kids? Adults, you can, too, but, you know. All right. Here's your wrist. That part of your brain inside your head It's in charge of thinking about your body and what you're doing with your body and how are you feeling cold right now? Are you feeling hot? Are you feeling hungry or thirsty? That part of your brain tells you all of that information. And it's what keeps you breathing and it's what keeps your heart rate going, all those things. And then in the middle of your brain, pull your thumb over just like that. In your middle of your brain is this other part, and it's actually kind of small, but it's in charge of your emotions and your motivation. We sometimes call it this fancy word called the limbic system or the midbrain. It's that part. And then on top, I want you to fold your fingers over that middle section. That top is sometimes called the neocortex. You might have heard it called the cerebrium. Cerebrium. Oh, y'all know that. Yeah, that's not cerebellum. Cerebellum's something else, y'all. It's a, it's a, but it is cerebrum? Yes. I think all the doctors are like dying inside here, but it's okay. I did take anatomy once. Okay? So this part of your brain is what's in charge of all your critical thinking skills. It's in charge of like verbal processes, how we think, and you can put this down. Part of that process, maybe the most important part, this is what we're going to talk about today, this part on top, is something called the prefrontal cortex. And the prefrontal cortex is not necessarily a part of the brain as much as it is the interconnections in your brain. In other words, the way the prefrontal cortex works is that is the link and coordinator between all the parts of you. So how your body works, how your emotions feel, how you're thinking, all those parts need to be connected in order to work well. 
And God gave us this series of neural networks in our heads that helps us do those things well. And when you have all those things working together, well, that is what we call conscious brain activity. That is what enables us to be human, to live in this world. It's in charge of everything that we think of that is important about being a human, like empathy, morality, what we call intuition, our experience of that, something called insight, which is how we tell our story, how we make meaning in the world. All our critical thinking skills, stuff like impulse control, multitasking, all of that is a result of that prefrontal cortex. It's a result of those connections. And ideally, that part of the brain is what helps you respond to situations instead of react. That part of the brain is what's responsible for us regulating our behavior, for us taking a deep breath in the moment, for us not responding from that middle part of the brain. You see, ideally, if we were using the prefrontal cortex correctly, effectively, the strongest it could be, if we were utilizing all of those connections, then we would kind of be living our best life, neurologically speaking at least. We would be moral, empathetic, have good relationships, be able to interact with people well, be able to set boundaries when we needed to. We would be able to navigate the world better if all of those connections were in place. But then it's snow day number four, and you have three kids <laughs> under, well, how old are they, six? And someone's telling you that you didn't cut their PB&J right, but the other person says that you didn't cut theirs right either, and they're different intervals, and they're switching their pitches, so you're just kind of over the top, and you just lose your mind. <laughs> lose your mind. And you start yelling, theoretically, right? You start yelling, and you start saying things you really don't mean, but you're just, it's just been building up for four days, and you just let loose. Or maybe that's, not, maybe that's not your style. Maybe your style is that you kind of experience that same moment, and you go run into that office that you built for yourself. You close the door, and you don't come out for a couple hours, at least, until it's over. Or maybe that's not you. You don't do that. But you do, after this moment, take a breath and then go in the pantry, find those thin mints that you bury deep, deep, deep in that pantry and just sit on the floor until it's over. Theoretically, right? Theoretically, that's what we do. That's because when that happens, when those moments of high intensity, high stress happen, what happens, according to Dan Single, the guy who invented this, he calls it flipping your lid. Literally, your prefrontal cortex, the part that holds all those connections and links, just stops being connected. You lose it, basically, literally. You feel it in your body. You are losing your mind, and you're operating from a part of your body, two parts of your body, that aren't regulated at all. For most of us, these are superhuman moments. This happens to everyone. It's literally part of being human. But the issue is, when this starts happening over and over and over and over again, what happens is that those patterns start to reinforce themselves over and over and over again. And that connection that was there in your prefrontal cortex is no longer connected. You see, what neuroscientists call these processes is a version of integration and disintegration. So this is what integration is. When your prefrontal cortex is working, when it is intact, 
when there is no flipping the lid, when you are able to be present with your body, with your soul, with your spirit, with your emotions, that is because you are using all of the parts of your brain to produce a regulated emotional state. That doesn't mean you don't experience emotion. It just means you're able to handle the emotion, yeah? Or higher cri critical thinking skills in the situation. That is integration. But then the opposite of integration, when you are not reinforcing those neural pathways, is disintegration. And disintegration is exactly what neuroscientists warn us about. It's the state of chaos, and it can become permanent if you're constantly forming those neural networks, right? And I think what we need to talk about today, what I'm most interested in talking about, is the fact that we are really susceptible to disintegration. We as humans are not only susceptible to flipping our lid, we all know that, but we're susceptible to making it a part of our personality. Y'all know people who over time have done this and this and this and this. They seem not to handle stress well, and it comes out either as anger or withdrawal. It comes out as some form of non-healthy behavior. And over time, if you do that for years and years and decades and decades, what happens? You just become a reactive person stuck in these patterns that you have forced yourself into over and over and over again. And the reason for this, the reason that I think we're susceptible to disintegration is because disintegration happens at this most primal urge in human beings. If you had to ask any psychologist, you know we have some here, but any psychologist, what is humanity's most primal urge when it comes to the processes of their mind? It is to avoid at all cost any unpleasant experience whether that's physical pain, emotional pain, discomfort, awkwardness, vulnerability, shame, guilt, we are going to avoid it because that doesn't feel great. And if that doesn't feel great, then we're gonna turn to all these other things to avoid that experience. And I think for most of us, we probably do one of three things, the three things I mentioned. You like me, you externalize it. You yell, you scream, you take it out on other people, you throw things occasionally, you do things like this, you just put it out there. It feels better to be out there than it is in me. So I'm gonna externalize it. Some of you don't do that. My husband doesn't do that. You don't do that at all. Everyone's like, he's the calmest person ever. And it's like, well, he doesn't do that. I'm not gonna spill your dirty laundry. But occasionally, those type of people, what they tend to do is that they tend to just ignore it. Let's pretend it's not here. Let's pretend that emotional experience never happened. I don't feel angry. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm okay. Actually, I never get angry. We never fight. They're the kind of people who just hate the conflict. They don't want to deal with how that feels, so they're just going to pretend it's not there. In technical terms, we might call that repressing, right? Like moving that down. And then other people know it's there, feel it. But they're just going to run away from it. They're gonna just do something else to avoid that experience. Maybe they literally physically remove it themselves. Maybe they turn to things to occupy their minds so they don't have to think about it. And these things, we always talk about the big ones, the ones that get us in trouble, like drugs or alcohol or things like this, but there are others. Work is a big one, because it looks good, right? But it's still a coping mechanism. Food is another one that we use. It can be anything. 
we look to avoid. So either you avoid, you oppress, or you externalize it. And those are all fine. Those are all ways that we've learned to cope. And they're not bad in and of themselves. But when we start doing them over and over and over and over again, not only do we form this pattern where we're breaking up those connections that exist in ourselves, we're also creating a person that we don't want to be. You see, what happens in this disintegrated state, the state where we are no longer whole, is eventually you start to isolate yourself. It, it starts inside. You start to disconnect from parts of yourself. It's why when you act certain ways, you're like, ooh, that totally wasn't like her, or that wasn't like me. It's because they literally aren't using all of themselves. They've broken up the connections that make them who they are. We'd start to pull apart and not use parts of our brain that are needed for us. But what also is interesting is that not only does that happen in yourself, it starts to happen with your relationships too, right? That's the general direction that neuroscience is teaching us is, whoa, there's something connected between how we are inside and how we relate to other people. And fundamentally, if you are disconnected in your own being, it is gonna be really hard for you to connect with other people around you. If you are disconnected, disintegrated in your own mind, you are not going to be able to connect with people well. And if that becomes who you are, you fall into chaos and confusion, neurologically speaking, it might not show up in ways that point to chaos and confusion. Not exactly, but if you look close, you can often find it. And the bottom of that totem pole is when you fall into neurological psychosis. You are no longer who you were created to be. And what I find so fascinating about this, about all of this, is that at its heart, what I'm talking about is a spiritual problem. We define spirituality as a connection, a meaningful connection to something greater than you. For us here as Christians, we call that something God. Spirituality is the connection to something greater than you. If you are disconnected in your own being and disconnected from the people God called you to love, then you are in a spiritual conundrum. Biblical authors would call it spiritual death. It was a sense of not being who God created you to be. And you'd be wondering why there wasn't peace, why there wasn't life like you wanted it to. And sometimes the answer was inside your own way of functioning. The biblical authors wrote about this quite a bit. Of course, they didn't use 21st century medical terms. But they did speak to this idea. And there's quite a few references, but we're going to look at one in Jeremiah. You see, in, for biblical authors, especially Hebrew authors, they talked about the mind, what we call the mind, as the heart. The heart was their sense of will. It was their sense of self. It was how we think about who we are. And so this verse is out of Jeremiah. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? 
I mean, that's pretty intense, right? That's an intense thing to say, that who we are is deceitful, right? But as I was reading this, as I was thinking about this, I was like, no, that's exactly it. We have a tendency towards disintegration. We have a tendency to believe things that aren't true. We think we're fine. We think we're okay. We think we're functioning well. And yet, our relationships are broken. Life isn't going as we thought. We don't have that peace beyond understanding. We're not able to handle external circumstances well. We're struggling, and we wonder why. Could it be that this verse speaks to that tendency we have to want a reality that isn't there, to wish for something that isn't true, from hiding from a reality that is in ourselves? And it would be kind of terrible if they left it like this, right? If they were just like, great, your heart is deceitful, good luck, right? But that is not the case in most of these passages. So Jeremiah, it's in a poem, he's, he's talking about this condition of humanity, that we tend to be in this place where we cannot trust some of our tellings about reality, some of our stories we tell about reality. But then he answers his own question, and he does it in the form of God. So the question is, okay, here's the condition, God. What do we do? How do we prevent this tendency towards being disconnected? And Jeremiah answers, but in the form of God's voice. And he says, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. That is the solution. That is the solution. And sometimes, actually, when we're reading that, it's kind of a, that's not a great solution. What the heck does that mean? Search the mind. I search the heart and examine the mind. But I actually think, just like we translated that verse into 21st century neuroscience, we can, too, translate this into how does this look like? What does this look like here and now? What does it mean for God to search our heart and examine the mind. If that's the solution that they're proposing, that spiritual wisdom is pointing to, then what does that actually mean? And this, this is where I get super interested in this stuff. Because let's jump back a second. So remember, I'm talking about disintegration. It's a spiritual problem. I'm looking at it from a spiritual lens. But neuroscientists, they just look at it from a human functioning lens, right? People need to be able to function. So over the last 10 to 20 years, lots of neuroscientists, psychologists, psychiatrists have looked at exercises to help people integrate their minds. They have come up with lists. And it's not a super long list, but they've come up with lots of different ways to help people practice feeling connected to themselves and to others. And there's a long list, and I, I picked kind of the main five that they talk about. And these are the main five that they talk about. We'll do the first three. The first is attention. They often talk about exercises that you will literally look at a spot on the floor for like a certain 30 seconds. Then you have to move it up, then move it back down. And you have to practice focusing your attention. That's one of the types of exercise they talk about a lot. The other is attunement to the body. They're starting to understand that you, in order to be connected to that brainstem part, you have to have some type of body awareness. This is why yoga, mindfulness, things like this have come into the rage in the last 20 years because there's this understanding that if we're connected to our body, we might be able to function better. 
The third thing is novel learning experiences. Sometimes they'll suggest that people take up a hobby in midlife or things like this. Start to learn new things, especially later in life, and it seems to integrate that brain better. All right, the next one is a little bit more mushy-gushy, but it's feeling seen or validated. And this, the last one is autobiographical narratives. I'm going to combine this too, because what they've realized is that those essentially, this is why talk therapy works. Feeling seen or validated is when you have an experience of sitting across from someone, you're in a vulnerable state, you're feeling pretty emotional, and they recognize that you feel that way and you feel understood, there is a connection and attunement there. And somehow, that helps integrate our brain. The other piece, the autobiographical narrative, what they found is that if people are able to tell stories that happened to them in the past, they're able to identify who, what, when, where, and how. Notice that why isn't on there. The why question spins you into dark places, so they don't put that on there. But if you are able to tell your story, Somehow, it integrates your brain and forms those connections in that prefrontal cortex better. This is why we go to therapy. This is why we tell those stories, because it's a practice of helping us better integrate our brain. As I was reading through all of these exercises, I was like, well, this is super interesting, and these are really cool. But it didn't take me long before you start to realize, like, oh, oh, um, these are things that spiritual people have been talking about for centuries, centuries. Not just Christians, before Christians, Jews, Buddhists. We've been talking about these very ideas. They just didn't have the language to talk about integrating your brain. In, in Christian language, we call these spiritual disciplines. We use the word discipline, but it's a translation from a Latin word. But actually, in Latin, the word was exercises, spiritual exercises. That's what they were called for the first thousand years of their existence. They were literally meant to train you how to be connected to yourself and to others. Those disciplines still exist. They've just kind of fallen out of favor. There's some people have used them a little problematically. And so sometimes we, we don't like talking about them. But I want to show you what I kind of came up with as I was thinking about these. Attention was the easy one. Guys, people have been doing meditation for 2,000 years, longer probably. The idea that it makes sense for your brain and is good for you to focus on something for a short amount of time is not negotiable. That is true. We have so much data that proves it in addition to the thousands of years of people claiming that it helps. We sometimes forget that this is a Christian practice. If you do it, there's a guy in the last couple centuries or last couple decades um, who wrote a book on centering prayer. That's a version of meditation. But Christians have claimed this meditation for a long time. You can do it by a word, like picking a word like grace and just holding it in your mind and saying focus. You can do it by focusing on something. If you've ever were raised Catholic, you have a sacrament called adoration where you literally go to the altar and contemplate the cross, those things exist to train our attention. That is what meditation is for. Attunement to the body, there are lots of ways to do this, but traditionally Christians, that's why they relied on fasting. That was one of the pillars of Christian disciplines, and fasting enabled people to feel in touch with their body. If you've ever fasted, 
you know it's pretty hard to ignore your body in the moments of like, ugh. It's hard to feel those hunger pangs. And we don't feel hungry, actually, lots of the time. And so reintegrating fasting has been a solution for a lot of Christians to feel connected to themselves. Then for novel learning experiences, this has always looked different. We've always used the same text, the Bible, right? But the way we've studied it traditionally has always been in dialogue and debate with each other. That's how we keep it novel as Christians. We don't just read it to read it. We try to learn from it. We assume that this text is going to give us more, and we're always studying it more. There's always more to learn. Christians have long taken this and under their wing as one of their core practices. It's why most universities are funded by Christians historically, at least in the West. Then we have feeling seen and autobiographical narratives. Feeling seen traditionally has been done through confession. You would go to, this, go to church, you would talk to a priest, a priest would ideally say you are forgiven, and that would be done, and you would walk away. There wasn't judgment, hopefully. There wasn't judgment. They weren't holding anything against you. You were just giving a space to tell your story. And then lastly, and this is one we don't talk about a lot, mostly because people weren't literate until very recently, right? But the number of Christian diaries and like journals from the 1500s on, y'all, it is a sad practice we have lost. I've read several journals and diaries where people would just, like that was their spiritual practice. They would go and just say what they did that day and where they saw God over and over and over again. These were not like priests or pastors. These were just normal people. And that was what they did. And by doing that, they rewrote their own story. They found meaning in their life. It is something that was available to everyone and enabled them to again form those connections in their brain that made it sustainable for them to keep moving in this life. And look, I know that uh, disciplines get a really bad rap, right? Because I read something, I mean, even, even me, guys, I really struggle with these. It's hard to maintain them. It's hard to do them every day. It's hard to choose one. And I read something this week that was like, disciplines, these disciplines in terms of integrating your mind only work if they are done without burden. And that is hard because most of us put that burden either on ourselves or we assume it. But I find it helpful whenever I'm in the season of contemplating taking on an exercise, which I'm about to do because it's about to be Lent. And that is traditionally the time when we kind of resurrect some exercises. I think about what the purpose of the disciplines is. Why am I doing this? And this is where we depart from neuroscience as spiritual people. We do these exercises to make room for the spirit. That is it. Because the process of integrating your mind is not on you. You are not the initiator. It is a creative work of God in you. But you have to set the stage for that to happen. You have to provide the room for that to happen. You have to set up the atmosphere so that God can work in you. Because God is willing. God is ready. God's been waiting. But if you do not take those steps, there is no space for God to work. That is the spirit 
that you take on one exercise, maybe two, but start with one, one exercise at a time. Because you believe, because you know that by doing so faithfully, you start to not only integrate your mind with the help of God, but you start to become the person that God created you to be. Here we talk about that as becoming like Jesus. That is the Christian project. You are supposed to be like, think like, act like, love like Jesus. Paul talks about this, and this is where I'll wrap up. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians. He's talking about the spirit working in us. He's talking about what that means. And he poses this question from Isaiah that says, but how can we know how to be like Jesus? And it ends, it ends with this. And Paul says, but we, we have the mind of Christ. You have access to a gift. That gift was given to us by Jesus. It is the ability to become more like Jesus, more like God in this life, not in the next. So my hope and my prayer as we gather to take communion, as we move towards Lent, is that you might start to take seriously what you need to make space for God in your life and in your mind, and in your whole spirit, that you might start to take that quest seriously and understand your role in it. Okay, let us pray. Holy Spirit, we are here. We are available. Sometimes it's hard to figure out what steps we're supposed to take next, how we move forward. Sometimes we're unconvinced. Lord, I just ask for clarity. I ask that you may move, make things available to us, maybe make those first steps easy, that we might take on these exercises without burden, but with a goal, that we may transform to be more in your image, just like you intended us to be. It is in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen.